Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast. I'm very much looking forward to joining with you in a conversation with Catherine Colon. Catherine Colon is Emerita Professor of American History at the Université de Paris, and she's a French researcher in the fields of labor and immigration history. The author of numerous publications, she edited An American in Hitler's Berlin, Abraham Plotkin's Diary, 1932 to 1933, and her most recent book, Rescue, Relief, and Resistance, the Jewish Labor Committee's anti-Nazi operations from 1934 to 1945 was translated into English in 2021 and received the Organization of American Historians 2017 prize for the best book on American history written in a foreign language. Catherine Colon, thank you so much for joining us on the Commons podcast. It's a pleasure to speak with you and to speak about this book. Before we launch into the subject of your book, which is the Jewish Labor Committee and the Rescue of European Jews, I want to situate your research in the context of our haunted American Jewish psyche. We have received a widespread idea among historians and the greater public that the American population, including American Jews, remained indifferent to or, in fact, willingly ignored the genocide of European Jews during World War II. Where does that idea come from and how does it set the background for your book? Uh, yes, it's in a, an idea that has been circulated since uh, Arthur Moore's book uh, on uh, the abbacy of the American public, including Jews, concerning uh, the destruction of European Jewry. And that the first book was uh, published in 1968. So it has been in the air for a long time, and especially David Wyman reinforced uh, this idea with his book, The Abandonment of the Jews. There is a, a new point of view uh, uh, proposed by Lishman and also Brightman that Roosevelt, in fact, was sensitive to the issue, although he would not diverge his war strategy during World War II, he would not change it for the sake of Jews, and that is true. But on the other hand, it is through his administration with the War Refugee Board that the first steps were taken to help refugees, although this was already very late in the context of Nazi destruction of European Jewry. So that is the background, and I, I agree with that background. But instead of uh, continuing to criticize the American administration on this subject, I looked at the positive action taken by American labor to save Jews or more generally victims of the Nazi uh, destructive programs. One of the dimensions of this idea is that the Jews themselves were relatively ineffective or even indifferent to, to their fellow Jews in World War II. And, and that's where your book comes in very strong because you introduce us 
to the Jewish Labor Committee or the JLC, which most American Jews have probably never heard of, and which directly challenges this notion of Jewish apathy. So I'd like to ask you to introduce us to the JLC. What was the primary mission of the Jewish Labor Committee, and what did it achieve in the pre-war and war years? The JLC was founded in 1934 by a section of uh, the the American labor movement known as uh, Jewish labor. That is, it uh, included, of course, the big needle trades unions, but also the workmen's circle and uh, the Jewish Verbund, the Labour Party. It was created in response to the destruction of uh, the Third Reich, the Nazi authorities, of the whole German labour movement in 1933. So primarily, the Jewish Labour Committee reacted very clearly to the destruction of the German labour movement. But in fact, the Jewish Labor Committee, as its name includes, was Jewish and had always been concerned by the fate of Jewish people in Europe. They themselves were Jewish. They were Jewish immigrants from the Russian Empire, had arrived in the United States in uh, the pre-World War I period. And they were all Bundists. Bundism was a Jewish labor party uniting Jewish workers in the Russian Empire. Uh, So the Bund was primarily in the Russian Empire, a labor party and a general labor union. The founders of the Jewish Labor Committee in New York in 1934, who had reached uh, the top of the Jewish labor movement, David Dubinsky, Sidney Hillman were themselves former Bundists. They had been part of this movement in Russia in defense of Jews and in defense of workers. They had been young militants and forced to emigrate because of the repression against their movement in, in the early revolutionary movement in Russia in 1905. Baruch Charney Vladek, who was the initiator of the Jewish Labor Committee, and became its first president, was also a very well-known young leader of the Bund in Russia. So these people, let's say Vladek, Dubinsky, Hillman, and others who are less well-known today, they had been militants in defense of Jewish interests, uh, Yiddish-speaking people, Uh, the Yiddish culture of the workers in the Russian Empire. They had been uh, agitators and and revolutionary persons leading that movement in Russia. Then they came to the United States and reached the top of their labor unions. Vladek himself was the manager, not the editor, but the manager of uh, the daily Yiddish uh, paper, uh, The Forward. So these persons who had had an active uh, <clears throat> revolutionary past became in immediately sensitive to the threat that uh, Germany posed to Jews and to workers. In 1934, by founding the, the Jewish Labor Committee, they uh, reacted to the destruction of the German labor movement and also 
simultaneously to the destruction of the Austrian labor movement in 1934 too. So their, their aim, their first aim was to give support, aim and rescue to victims of Nazi destruction of German labor. But at that point, they did not aim at creating a refuge for all Jewish persons. That was impossible. What they organized was the rescue or the, the financial support or providing relief or, uh, for some leaders that they knew of the German labor movement, Austrian and also Italian labor movement because in the garment trades, which they organized, of which they had become the leaders, the labor force was multi-ethnic, uh, Jewish, yes, but also Italian, Polish, not Jewish, uh, Czech, uh, Slav. So it was a multilingual uh, constituency and, and uh, they supported leaders from these countries, Italy, which had become fascist Italy, Germany, which had become Nazi, Austria, which had, was also on, uh, under the threat of Nazi assimilation, integration. They created contacts with European labor leaders and helped them come to the United States. The Bundists, who were at the foundation of the JLC, were Jewish socialists who had a very complicated relationship with communism. Among other things, because they were identifying Jews, the Bundists didn't properly fit the radical cosmopolitanism and anti-nationalism of what we think of as traditional communism. Insofar as these Bundists were the founders of the Jewish Labor Committee, and they also relied on support from left-wing organizations back in Europe, how did they navigate their options in trying to cooperate with Europeans given their ideological limitations? The Bund was a massive labor party in the Russian Empire. It was part of the revolution in 1905 and part of the revolution in 1917, but they opposed the Bolshevik communism and methods of action. So in the 1930s, in the United States, the Jewish Labor Committee did not include communist organizations, and vis-a-vis -vis Europe, they did not create relations with communist leaderships of, of labor parties in Europe. They worked within the Labor and Socialist International or within the International Federation of Trade Unions, but not within the Communist International. Vladek, for instance, traveled to Europe several times in the 1930s, meeting leaders of the Socialist International. And he made sure not to uh, have any conflict and entanglement with communist organizations. Of course, in Germany, there was a strong communist party, but they created ties with uh, ADGB, the non-communist uh, organization. Similarly, in, in Austria, they created ties with the social democratic labor parties, but not with communist organizations. And eventually, the persons for whom they offered um, a haven in the United States were not communists. So certainly the history 
of the Jewish Labour Committee is apart from the history of international communism. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click Sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. How did the JLC manage anti-Semitism among the European anti-Nazis with whom they needed to work? They were sensitive to anti-Semitism in the United States by creating uh, programs uh, within the labor unions to, uh, to, to make workers sensitive to that issue. In Europe, they, were, they worked in collaborations with uh, anti-fascist organizations. They met organizations uh, that were organizing uh, support of Jewish refugees uh, who were coming to France, for instance, uh, or Italian refugees from Mussolini, Italy, also being rescued in France. They worked along the line of anti-Semitism, but they worked within the labor organizations, the Labor and Socialist International or the uh, Federation of Trade Unions. You made reference to anti-Semitism at home in the United States. And so I wonder what strategies the JLC adopted in relation to the challenges here. Anti-Semitism was strong in the United States uh, in the 1930s. And one thing that the Jewish Labor Committee did was to counter the influence of the uh, the Olympic Games in Germany, they created Olympic Games in New York City in August 1936, at the same time as they were developing in, in, in Germany. Another was that with the American Jewish Congress, another Jewish American organization, they took part in boycotts of German goods and machines. Uh, for instance, in the garment trades, they opposed uh, the use of uh, sewing machines uh, coming from Germany. Uh, they participated in a vast network of boycott of German goods. I don't think this was very effective against Germany, but it, it did take place. Anti-Semitism was also strong in the American administration, especially in the State Department, and this prevented any change in the quota system, which completely uh, restricted even the acceptance of refugees in the United States. Everything was regulated by the quota system. Since the beginning of the Depression, quotas had been reduced to 10% of their value. So... The, the number of immigrants admitted in the United States was extremely low, even for Germany, uh, Austria, and, and those countries. So the JLC tried to influence representatives in Congress on that issue, but both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party 
would not move on that issue. So the JLC quickly understood that they would not obtain any significant change in the immigration laws in the quota system. So they circumvented that by finding a way of, of obtaining visitors' visas for those persons for whom they wanted to offer rescue. Can you tell us one of the most compelling anecdotes or stories that you learned to help give us a vignette of this incredible work in the JLC, which is so unknown to most Americans and American Jews? I think uh, most Americans, and especially American Jews, have heard of Varian Fry, an American citizen who was in Marseille in France and saved a number of artists, uh, writers, intellectuals who were admitted in the United States as refugees. Yet uh, leaders of the Jewish Labor Committee created a parallel and similar network of rescue parallel to that of Varian Fry. In 1940, when France was occupied, anti-Nazis, anti-fascist persons, especially labor leaders or leaders of Jewish organizations, had found a refuge in France during the 1930s. They suddenly found themselves in a death trap. They were uh, on the list, the Gestapo lists. And the Jewish Labor Committee knew of them and knew how they were displaced during the exodus in France from Paris, the Paris region to the southern region. They knew of their whereabouts. And the Jewish Labor Committee quickly, very quickly, in July 1940, name by name, they obtained first 300 visas for these men and women and their families. Eventually, it was at least 1,500 persons whom they rescued by providing them with visas to be admitted to the United States. In spite of the quota system, they obtained that. And how did Veren Fry and the Jewish Labor Committee um, collaborated uh, is that the Jewish Labor Committee named its it's the persons it wanted to protect. And these persons were to find their visas by the American consulate in Marseille. Well, in itself, it was very difficult to get from one place to the other in France during the occupation and to obtain a visa and then to obtain an exit visa to leave France and to cross Spain and Portugal. In, in Marseille, those people often went to Varian Fry, that is the other organization, the agent of the Emergency Rescue Committee, so another committee. Varian Fry certainly helped them to, to go to obtain the visa uh, from the consulate or probably provided money too to help them uh, live during those days. Uh, <clears throat> so there is, in fact, a collaboration between the two organizations the Emergency Rescue Committee of Varen Frank and the Jewish Labor Committee, which operated from New York City by giving names to the, uh, the uh, State Department in Washington, uh, having the visa sent to Marseille and, and signed, and uh, sending money to those refugees and helping them, directing them on their uh, very difficult 
crossing uh, of the Pyrenees uh, through persons whom they also supported, etc. So this is one extraordinary uh, action which they were able to, to lead. Another is that at the same time, the JLC created another rescue network for leaders of the Jewish labor movement in Poland, which was Bundist in interwar Poland. The Bund had become a very important movement and political party. Those uh, Jewish leaders uh, had found refuge in Lithuania. And Lithuania by them had been annexed by the Soviet Union. So the, again, similarly, these people who had found a haven, temporary haven there were in a trap and were to be uh, probably deported to USSR and uh, certainly would not have survived. So the Jewish Labor Committee was similarly uh, able to obtain visas for 300 persons there and follow the steps of uh, their evacuation from Kovno um, or Vilna in Lithuania uh, through USSR to Japan, which was not yet at war, uh, somewhere uh, stayed in Japan, in Kobe for a while, and obtained trans-Pacific transportation to uh, San Francisco. Uh, so the GLC was able to coordinate these two rescue networks and efforts uh, for hundreds of people uh, from two parts of uh, Europe, which were uh, submitted to uh, authoritarian dictatorial governments, USSR and Lithuania, uh, Nazi Germany, which had invaded uh, France with the collaboration of the Vichy government in France, which also contributed to hunting enemies of the Third Reich. I mean, it is true that those German refugees who were in France had to be able to get out of France in spite of the Gestapo, in spite of the French police, which was also collaborating with the Gestapo to arrest people whom the Gestapo wanted. Catherine Colon, I want to thank you so much for this illuminating and really unknown chapter of history. Thank you for joining the podcast. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts or at the College Commons website, collegecommons.huc.edu, where you can also stay tuned for future episodes.